Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the fifth now episode of Setting the World Straight. Um, it's a double episode today. It's just me and Charlie. Uh, Charlie, good evening. How are you? Good evening. I'm well, thank you. How are you? He's not actually well. He's got a little bit of a cold at the moment. It's not COVID. We've done the tests. Don't worry. But uh, I think we're both feeling a bit sorry for ourselves with some man flu. All the better for being here, though. But um, you've got us here to hopefully cheer up your uh, wintry autumnal evenings Um and we're going to be talking about today, I think what's a really interesting topic. Um, what we're going to be looking at is the, the title of this is going to be How the Army Fights Wars. And then some reflections for that for the real world. What do we mean by the real world? We mean everybody outside the army. We live in our, our make-believe world here in the army where we think everything's centered around us. But actually, for the rest of society, they're looking at this from a completely different perspective. But I do think there are some really interesting lessons that, um, as we phrase it, the rest of society, civilian streets, some other people can take from the way the army does business. Now, why does the army have this wisdom? Because you might think, you know, what, what do they know that I don't know? There's, there's plenty of uh, management sciences out there, strategic learning out there. There's loads of stuff that's come about probably in the last sort of 50 years in, in, the, in the civilian sector where it's been codified, written down and put into books. And some really interesting stuff that we in the army could definitely learn from, um, from other industries. So what makes the army a particularly useful and uh, poignant place to draw some lessons? Well, I'd put it to you. You walk into Waterstones uh, on the British High Street or or bookshop of your choice. You go in there and there's an absolutely huge section on military history. It's massive. For the size of the shop, you look how much of it is dedicated to to military history. It's absolutely huge. Dangerously tempting. I know. Especially this time of year lost in there christmas presents for days and then your family find out you like that stuff and you get even more but um my point being from that is that humans have devoted a lot of study to the military art and and arguably they've maybe devoted to it because it's an interesting topic but but i think that's redundant the fact is a lot of thought has been has been put into how do humans conduct warfare and this isn't just thought in recent generations and when we look back to the campaigns of the past no napoleon would have referred back to the campaigns of alexander Alexander would have re- referred back to the, the, the campaigns of, uh, of Troy, of his, his, his predecessors, uh, you know, the Mycenaeans. Um, so throughout history, warfare has been studied. And I think it's been studied because it's got so much scope to go wrong. You know, you lose, uh, you lose a battle, uh, you lose a war. That could be the end of your, end of your nation. So there's really high scope. So there's no, there's no place for you to learn on the job when it comes to the military art and therefore people have studied it really other people's behaviors in a load of depth and had some really interesting thoughts on it and perhaps got down some profound human truths yeah and it's interesting i mean just initially there that culture of professionalism uh, i think is really important for our line of work because perhaps in the past even as recently as the sort of end of the 20th century the british army potentially had slipped into that culture of amateurism in terms of you know the officer cohort and perhaps you know our 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 focus had slipped a bit because our focus from a doctrine perspective had become quite narrow potentially and quite focused on kind of division level warfare on the rhine you know a la la world war ii and arguably we got out fought by people who were more learned in these subjects and perhaps understood um the truth, and it comes down to I think something we've talked about a lot in this podcast: the importance of psychology, the human element of all of this. 
So, so what we're going to look at today is, is three sort of topics, if we get around to it. Um, we're going to look at something called the maneuverist approach. Um, a bit of a confusing term, but we'll come on to it. We're going to look at the principles of war. There's 10 of them. Some of them, are, uh, and we'll, we'll dig into as many of them as, as we can. And then we're going to also look into something called mission command. Maybe a term you've heard of, maybe a term you haven't. It's a really interesting one, sometimes poorly understood, but um, hopefully we'll, we'll get into the depths of it. So the first one we're going to go into um, is a bit of what's called the maneuverist approach. So what is the maneuverist approach? It's something that I think came about in actually, I think the 80s or the 90s. It's quite a new thing. And the term's a bit confusing because you hear maneuver and you think, oh, it's about moving tanks around and stuff like that. It's absolutely not, actually. What the maneuverist approach is, is about getting us as, say, from the army out of a perspective of seeing things in terms of um, seizing ground, destroying enemy positions, um, claiming these great big kind of victories and realizing that actually it's about a human on the other end. It's about having an effect on our enemies, our allies, our own soldiers themselves. And the key terms that they bring out of that is um, breaking the enemy's will and cohesion and uh, sustaining our own will and cohesion and realizing at the center of warfare, there's people. I don't know what you think, Charlie. Um, I think that importance of realizing that the system does not in exist on its own. The system exists for people and around people is perhaps something that maybe other industries could consider in their in their huge kind of bureaucracies and, and systems. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And, and I've got sort of two initial thoughts. Firstly, I think it's quite uh, potentially easier for us to... Um, for us to reflect on the influence of psychological operations in the last of decades. You know, you take the example of, of Russian soldiers in the Ukraine and, and the way in which, you know, uh, Russian armed forces have a focus on dominating the narrative, both within their country, but also within, you know, that eastern region of the Ukraine and the, and the Crimea. And I think potentially, you know, our armed forces are a bit behind the curve and sort of now catching up with the importance of, owning the narrative from a media perspective uh you know it's the the, the will of the people and, and and making sure that they you know support your underlying aims um you know re reflecting back to uh you know world war ii I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment about uh the resistance fighters in, in in the second world war and of course you know dominating the narrative in world war ii was in a way much more simple in the sense that you had traditional forms of communication and actually something like the bbc uh, was very good and 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 widely respected sort of internationally, which enabled the Allies to dominate that narrative in a way that is clearly much more diluted in the 21st century because we have such a broad range of media outlets. Yeah, yeah. And I think our, you know... And it's hard to know which one will catch on, yeah, you know, exactly which one that. is it that people are going to listen to in this story because yeah. it could come from so many sources. Yeah, you look at the influence today of, of, of Russia today as a TV channel and it's, it's global reach uh, and that's just one example. Um, I think we are a bit behind the curve and therefore this maneuverist approach is something that we are still you know developing our, our best practices for. Yeah, definitely. It's certainly it's definitely not something we have refined. I think we've got the idea in place, but the the um perhaps the inaction of it isn't 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 nailed down. But in terms of thinking how how is this apply applicable to, to wider audiences? And I think that that narrative, that communication piece is is really, really interesting that Charlie's come onto there. You know, how do you communicate with your perhaps large organization, your perhaps dispersed organization? God, let's look at COVID when everyone was... And, and, and narratives, that, that use of that term narratives is really useful because communication, if it's um, 
it can be um it can be persistent you know you can be getting it all the time but it can all just blend into a into a sort of mush of not really the message getting through really the messages that get through to people i would argue are ones that have a little bit of an emotion an emotive element to it and there's a you know this comes into politics there's a few people uh, i read a few books recently where they talk about international relations has to be framed in a kind of values mindset um because well, I, was, I was just thinking about building on the COVID example. You take the, the British government slogan for uh, you know stay at home, you know protect the NHS, save lives. You know simple pithy yeah. slogans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know I, I think we've how long have we lasted this podcast before we quote uh, Klaus Schwitz? Probably ten, 10 minutes. But you know this idea of, of, of war being a, an extension of politics by the means that the two are in, in you know fundamentally intertwined. Yeah. And so when we think about military narratives, actually it's political narratives as well. And the two very much interlink just as during COVID. You know, we saw the the uh, working together of military and political bodies towards that same sort of unified... Uh... I've got a, an, another thought for you, Charlie, here on... So we're talking about this human element of kind of communication and stuff like that. And um, I, I feel like large systems can... Um, trend to, even if you got your messaging right we've talked about the um uh, you know getting getting the the communication right through kind of emo- emotive mes- messaging something that really ties into the human story behind it and that's what people really buy into and that can be really powerful when you're thinking about how you deliver your messaging however um i feel like sometimes these large systems can become agnostic that there are humans in the process you can kind of be communicating with your boss or somebody else in your business miles away and they just become the great system of which they are a cog in the system and you forget that there's a human being on the end of that um i don't really have any thoughts on how we can better humanize some of these 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 uh systems within which we work in yeah it's, it's a really good question and and i think within the military circles you know do we have that distance i think probably not uh you know within a unit or subunit so by that i mean you know a sort of a regiment's within one barracks of say four or 500 people, I think you don't necessarily have that um, leadership um, gap, you know, where you might feel forgotten or you might feel like you're not being involved in conversations. Uh, but of course, when you, when you reach up the echelons of command and, and, you know, your, your generals who are based in headquarters and surrounded by, you know, doting, uh, you know, majors and half colonels, um, Clearly, there is much more of a, of a gap there by which your average junior uh, soldier might well feel like he's he's got that sort of distance and doesn't feel, you know, connected and, and involved. Um, but I, just reflecting more broadly there on, on how to sort of reach out to the broader public, it, it feels a lot like sort of publicity, really. And you, you mm. think about the most successful um, slogans, you know, PR slogans like Nike, you know, just do it. Um, or the way in which you know Apple really captures people's imagination with their you know very beautiful um, you know advertisements you know whether it's using the sort of hands on the iPads or the yeah. photography you know that ability to, to to market a product and to make everyone feel involved in that in that process and you know to be part of the you know to be in the in crowd by having this particular item of clothing or this particular bit of technology I think perhaps there are lessons there we could learn bring that back into the army i I wonder what a sort of unifying products you know might look like within the army military circle yeah i mean that that apple one's great isn't it because you look at apple versus android the kind of classic um and android are often be like yeah but we've got we've got the better tech our phone is 
so much more powerful. It's got a better camera on it. It's got, but for some reason, people just keep on buying Apple. Uh, you know, you might hear the term brand loyalty thrown around, but really, what it is is they they've got that that kind of human side of the messaging. They realise the bits of the product that people really like, and they've absolutely tuned into that. And they've um, and and you're right that that element of the simplicity of the messaging. It's a nice, simple product. Um, you know, people all live busy lives. They don't want to hear a complex um, kind of concept delivered to them unless they're listening to a podcast, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking back to sort of, I've got this very uh, basic uh, diagram in front of me, which is from Army Doctrine. And it talks about understanding the situation and then seizing and holding the initiative. And, you know, so we in, in the in the military, you know, use the term initiative. I think in the political sphere, you might use the term zeitgeist, this idea of the kind of the, um, in a way, the sort of intangible thing that a successful politician grasps hold of and knows that that is the key to them um, empathizing with the, 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 the popular voter and, you know, winning those elections. And I suppose, you know, in the sort of um, communications and publicity side of life, it's, it's having that product that everyone wants, that, that desired mm. uh, product. And so, well, I, perhaps I've got to be off piece here, but, you know, thinking about how we can you know relate that initiative in the military circle into broader you know industry how do you uh, communicate that initiative how do you get buy-in from all the different stakeholders yeah. um so that you can move forwards in a successful and kind of unifying way yeah initially yeah because you can even if you've got your messaging right um you know your communications nailed down we've, we've remembered the human element of it that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to drive forward. And I'd put it to you an idea here at the moment that um, it's perhaps about selecting who are those in that very uh, millennial term, those influencers, as, as the term goes. And I think if you look back through history, you know, we've started this podcast off talking about how a lot of this stuff has, has come through through the um, the eyes of history. There's often a very small percentage of you know, the group, the population, who really drive change forward um it's very rare that you've got a, a kind of levee on mass and and everybody's driving towards the same goal um, because most people are living di- hard difficult lives um and, and they, they probably don't have have time for that but there's that core i mean it, hey we look in political theories and the whole um you know we, we we look back to the bolsheviks and um or sorry sorry to lenin and lenin realized his uprising of the people wasn't going to happen because the people just wouldn't do it on their own and that he wanted this core of revolutionaries, this small percentage to drive it forward. And I'm not saying we're necessarily agreeing with Leninist philosophies, but that was the, the kind of human idea behind it, that there is a core group of influencing people. Um, and I think that's that's got to be a, a key element of this. If you want to have an influence in a system made up of humans, find out who are that, let's say, 10% um, who really drive forward change. Yeah, I think, I think it goes slightly higher than that, actually. I think it's in thirds, or at least... We recently had a visit from a full colonel who's, you know, obviously a relatively senior uh, officer within the British Army. And he talked about just that sort of change agents and how you break it down to thirds. You've got a third who are embrace change, mm. who, who are keen to, you know, get on board and, and pursue that that sort of uh, piece of initiative, that that thing that's going to improve your, your business or organization. You've got the third who sit on the fence, who are in the middle. They kind of will go with the tide. And you've got the third who are actively against change. And the key thing for those change agents is to persuade the the middle third to get on board with them. Yeah, yeah. Inevitably, that tide turns 
to the extent that that final third, the sort of reluctant, hesitant third, um, get on board as well. That's interesting. So yeah, so don't waste your time sort of trying to change the naysayers because that's such an uphill battle. It's actually your kind of um, your uh, apathetic middle. Yeah, I really like but that. Actually, easier said than done. You know, uh, so you know, one particular example within the sort of military circles is, and I think we've actually really talked about it in in a previous episode of this podcast. Uh, you know, uh, looking at a different form of communication within our own organisation, and how you know, I myself, I would probably call myself a change agent for that particular argument. Mm. You know, have I actively sought out that middle third, the kind of guys in the fence? Probably not. I'm being honest. I've been so desperate to find other change agents, you know, in other words, the allies within sort of my third, I've probably neglected to find that middle yeah, third yeah. who are as important. So, and they're hard it, to identify yeah. as well, aren't they? Because, you know, by nature of who they are, we're saying they're the guys who sit on the on the fence post and go with the go with the flow. So they're the people that you perhaps don't notice in a, in a meeting. They're not the the grumpy guy. They're not the loud um kind of uh, enthusiastic guy that's yeah that's a really interesting way of looking at it is hunting out the middle the yeah. middle third so that, there you go we've actually gone from breaking the adversities cohesion from an enemy sense yeah. to <laughs> adversaries within our organization a whole other adversaries to change yeah. ball game um so yeah re- i mean a fascinating topic we could, we could go into that for for ages but um we, we, we're going to go on to our second topic of the day um so if the army's thinking back and how do we fight wars we've established that psychology is key if we're forgetting that wars are fundamentally a human endeavor um then we're setting ourselves up for learning the the wrong kind of lessons and and not fighting a war well and equally we've established now that well actually this this applies to all kinds of organizations don't forget that there's humans in this and it's about influencing humans um towards what, what you want to achieve the second element of it is um the army has reflected on history for reflected on all these campaigns and put together 10 principles of war. So they've looked at everything that's happened from Alexander onwards and probably before. And they said, what are the 10 common traits of the successful armies? And they've pulled it together into these 10 principles of war. Um, We're not going to have time to go over all of them, but we'll look at a couple of them and some of the ones that we think are actually um, applicable for other industries and and, and other organizations. I don't know whether, Charlie, you want to start? Yeah, absolutely. So... um... It's probably worth just briefly saying which which ten they are, and oh, yeah, then we go can go it, from yeah. there. So, selection and maintenance of the aim, maintenance of morale, offensive action, security, surprise, concentration of force, economy of effort, flexibility, cooperation, sustainability. Uh, now, for, personally, there are certainly some that jump out as being, uh, you know, transferable directly to the sort of, yeah. uh, civilian industrial sphere. Something like selection and maintenance of the aim. You know, that's quite a sort of tangible one for, for, for us all to grasp in, in the sense that, you know, a CEO of a company uh, or, a, you know, manager of a particular group of individuals has an aim in mind, you know, sets it out, makes a plan of how to achieve it. And, you know, taking that second one there, concentration of force, mm-hmm. you know, work out how you are best going to achieve that aim. I think, you know, just taking two there straight off the bat, you know, I think they're quite easily comprehensible perhaps we should choose one that's a bit more no to be honest it's interesting when you look at them i don't think we've got it on these sheets here but um selection and maintenance of the aim is highlighted as the key principle of war and i've I've recently finished a book that goes ad nauseum into um, why it's so important and it's essentially you know let's change that language from army military language into civilian languages 
it's um, establishing goals and it's setting a vision as well for your organization. Now, this is something the military has um, had issues with, of course, at loads of times. You know, there's been criticism of, of the recent campaign in, in, in Afghanistan and how there was, um, you'll hear it, in, it's been all over all the news articles saying there was no strategy. I mean, that's really it. There was no, no one has set out what they actually wanted to do, really nailed it down. Um, and I think that, that must apply for every organization. There's got to be organizations that are thrashing around, but to no kind of uh, collective common goal. And it, ultimately, if we've got all this, we can have loads of, of, of positive energy. But if it's not towards this really well-established um, aim, which we've selected, um, and how do we maintain it? It's, it's communicated to everyone. Everybody understands what the goal is, and we're all pushing in the same direction. Um, and, and I feel like that is the key thing that we must expect from our leaders. If, it, if there's one thing the leader must do, that is to establish what is the aim. I don't know if you have any thoughts. Yeah, you know what? We shouldn't take that for granted because, I mean, let's say our particular organization, a subunit might have 150 people in. Uh, you know, how one leader at the head of that subunit um, can, can project his or her aim, let alone at the unit level where you've got 500 people. Well, actually, that's still small fry compared to some of these big organizations and companies. You know, I wonder what the head of Tesco has as their... Um, you know, unified purpose, their their aim for the business that is Tesco yeah. in 2021, 22. You know, is it to be, you know, the leading provider of British, you know, products? Is it to be, you know, to offer that uh, balance between high-end products that someone like, you know, Waitrose might offer and sort of good value for money, like something like Aldi or Lidl, you know, and that's, he's, he or she has got to present that to thousands, if not tens of thousands of mm. employees. So yeah, absolutely easier easier said than done. And I mean, as you've already mentioned, Andy, we, you know, we do sometimes struggle with that in the army, probably because we're a hostage to decisions at the strategic level and at the political level. That of course we as individuals, you know, small cogs in the machine can't necessarily influence. Mm. Uh, and there's, there's a fascinating debate in 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 the book I've just finished, and it, and it was talking about essentially. You can create systems, and the army is quite good at this. Um, systems to um, bring about your decision making, and so it's kind of uh, it doesn't matter who's in this system. We're all kind of planning together, and it will generate a decision. It will generate a plan. However, sometimes those kind of plans just just don't really come together. They don't select the aim properly. So you you can you can ask your team to sort of select the aim. I think is what we're trying to say. Um, and you can generate the world's best system to to get them to self-generate that aim. But ultimately, I feel if it doesn't have that personal leaders or commanders touch to it, um, it, it often fails to fails to stick. And, and it, again, links into that whole psychology thing. And we like the idea of that um, slightly perhaps paternal, maybe maternal kind of character um, that can really establish to us what we're, what we're all kind of kind of moving towards yeah and it absolutely is a question of leadership in terms of how you project that aim um and in doing so you know keep the team on side you know for example um you know looking at the maintenance of morale which is the second one there you know keeping the guys on board keeping them positive yeah um you know whilst potentially pursuing a challenging or demanding um aim and you look at another one your flexibility you know mm. how difficult is it to potentially put all your eggs in one basket go hell for leather trying to you know hit that um you know quota for that particular financial quarter of the year and yet have the flexibility to deal with you know fastballs as we'd say in the yeah, army yeah. 
um, how to deal with you know things that come in at the last minute and shake the apple cart. And you can build you know, flexibility is a great one because yeah, you could build it in through through a culture. Because um, often you'll you know you use the term fastball, something comes in and, and, and people sort of complain about it. Um, but uh, they are just a natural part of, of often how we how we do business. Now maybe we can invent systems to sort of pr- minimize those fastballs, but often they're just a given. And you can create a culture where rather than seeing this as a as a, as a threat and, and an annoyance, they see it as actually you no, know, it's it's an opportunity and it's um and it's just part of the of, of what people are being kind of employed to do. Um, so I, I do think you can you can definitely set a culture for flexibility as well as organizational steps so you have got the ability um, in terms of how you're organizing groups grouped for it so looking at this list um there's 10 of them we've not got time to go through 10 of them although we could talk about this probably for hours um but to kind of prove my point that i think these army terms have got applicability outside of the army. Um, I'm going to take one that sounds uber, uber army, and I'm going to prove to you that it's not just for soldiering. Um, so looking at the list, um, oh God, there's a couple there. I'll go for concentration of force. Concentration of force, well, it brings to mind ideas of, of tank formations, smashing through positions with artillery going off and planes and, you know, all kinds of... Um, uh, heavy armor doing uh, doing what it what it's designed for. However, I think it's got wider ap- applicability. And I put you in this situation. We've got a, an organization. It's got lots of goals. It's got lots of um, change. It's trying to move forward with its various different change agents and things like that. It can choose. It can go for the the wide front approach, which is the opposite of concentration of force. It can be moving all of these uh, various different twenty different projects forward incrementally and they're all sort of advancing slowly line abreast next to each other um however i'd argue that's not that effective what's effective in these organizations is actually if we concentrate some of our resources be they people be they money be they um, other uh, time um into a set few projects and really move those forward a proper leap and i think it again plays back to that psychological bit people like to see progress progress is good for the organization it brings energy to the organization so Whereas glacial pro- progress of lots of, of loads of tasks, no one can track that many tasks and nobody notices glacial progress. People notice that step change. And that actually, when you're in an organization, maybe consider, concentrate your force, aim for step change in a small number of products, um, ra- projects, sorry, rather than um, several at once. Have you ever heard of the question, are you a hedgehog or a fox, Nandy? I have not. So the theory goes that if you're a hedgehog, you have one focus. You have one thing you concentrate all your effort on, all your you know intelligence and thought power. Okay. And if you're a fox, you can balance lots of plates at the same time, yeah. spin lots of plates, yeah. and you're you know you're kind of high functioning, um, multitasking individual that can mm. carry all these plates forwards, not necessarily to quite the level of detail and intensity of focus than the hedgehog has that okay. one idea. So I wonder, I mean, I got that from, um, I think Isaiah Berlin and it came across in, in a very good book called On Grand Strategy, um, which I recommend uh, anyone to read. Um, and essentially, I think there's an applicability here to to the concentration of force. It's very much a you know hedgehog perspective in the mm. sense that you've got all that drive, the one focus, that one you know aim, 
uh, as opposed to someone who might, like you say, push everything along at the same time, frantically balancing lots of different plates. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, is that as an effective a strategy? You know, what on grand strategy would say, uh, it's by uh, a guy called Gaddis. Uh, yeah, I think I've heard yeah. of him, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, what he would say is actually, you know, you can have very successful leaders who are both, head, you know, who's either a hedgehog or a oh, fox. That's really interesting. Uh, but I wonder in military circles, do we think it is better to be a hedgehog mm. or a fox? So can you, I don't know whether you know off the top of your head any leaders who you would say are kind of hedgehog, I mean, well-known people, people in the public eye who are hedgehogs or, or foxes or, or could describe what what a leader who's a hedgehog or a leader who's a fox would, would kind of look like. Yeah, so I think um, if you take um, uh, famous political figures, someone like Barack Obama, you know, balancing lots of plates, he had lots of aspirations for his mandate as president. I'd say he's a classic sort of fox character. In mm. fact, I think a lot of successful politicians have that capacity to balance lots of things. But clearly, you know, hour by hour, day by day, you are you are coping with very oh, different the, the, scenarios. I'll, I'll wedge in with a really great quote I, I yeah. read about. Um, uh, sort of, uh, they're saying, "Why do politicians seem like they're out of touch?" And they, I think the author said um, something like, "When you're when you're swimming for your life in a fast flowing river." Um, you don't have time to look at the country through which you uh, the river flows or something like that. And just saying that these guys' workload is so intense. They, uh, there's so many things landing in their lap, so much responsibility. They just don't have time to sit back and reflect and really understand the situation. And, and, and sorry, a little aside. I love no, that little I really quote, like though. That. No, really. And like you say, you got it in one. Um, do I think military leaders are hedgehogs or foxes on the whole? Probably more inclined towards hedgehogs, actually, okay. in terms mm. of that individual drive you know within their sort of two-year posting because on the whole obviously we deal in terms of two-year postings for officers i think that the soldiers on the whole tend to get three to five year postings. Longer, yeah. um i think often they have an economy a concentration of force as per our doctrine towards one aim um i think you take someone like steve jobs you know there's a classic uh, hedgehog in a sense it's that one idea one focus you know incredibly intense guy dry, driven towards creating the ultimate you know tactile product mm. um you know immersive experience so there will be one example for me of a, of a fox now, no, i wonder if you need like a bit of a obviously and as we always talk about in this podcast is about balance isn't it but um i wonder if you tend to if you've got an organization that's full of hedgehogs you maybe need a, a fox to kind of um, uh, not stop them from from getting too buried into their, their, their little areas. And then maybe if it's the other way around, maybe if you've got an organization that's full of foxes, you need that hedgehog to actually drive it forward and, and, and stop their energy just disappearing on, on kind of unaligned projects into the ether. Yeah, perhaps if you look at the transition from Churchill during the war to Clement Attlee mm. after World War II, you know, there you have a transition from someone who's very focused on one aim, clearly, you know, extremely important aim, guiding the country through the Second World War, to Clement Attlee, peacetime leader, clearly has, a, has appealed to the, the wider public and has this capacity to introduce a lot of really positive welfare reform, you know, across a broader array of, of society, you know, whilst also managing a kind of, clearly a kind of a society that's still on, you know, ration books and, yeah, and all the rest. So maybe that's an example of that. That's a great example. Yeah. Of a fox, a hedgehog yeah. to a fox uh, yeah, in the political yeah. sphere. So we've looked at, um, uh, we've looked at a few of the, the principles of war. We've looked at several of them, um, and we could go on for ages. And I, I'd put it to you guys. You know, have a little, have a little think. Think where, where would these be applicable? If you are um, one of our non-military listeners, think, hey, where could this apply to my workspace? Or maybe just think a bit more broadly. If you're one of our military listeners. 
um, and take it out of that war fighting scenario we used to. And I'll remind you of what they are. So selection and maintenance of the aim, maintenance and morale, offensive action. Mm, interesting one. We didn't look at that too much. Security, surprise, concentration of force, economy of effort, flexibility, cooperation, and sustainability some really interesting principles from which i think to to govern govern a lot of things yeah i wonder and it's a bit of a long ask because unfortunately at the moment in our particular working environment we don't actually have a female colleague who we see regularly we can bite onto the podcast Mm. i'd love to have a female perspective on what she thought of the offensive action the offensive mentality both Mm. within the army sphere but also wider society because i feel like you know, you, you think about industry, you think about maybe the city and the sort of financial sector. You know, we all know that sort of stereotype, the sort of macho male. We've talked previously about the color schemes, you know, that, that sort of red individual, you know, firing hot on all cylinders uh, with a very offensive mindset, you know, driven by that sort of competitive nature to, to be the best yeah, to yeah. win. And I wonder, you know, what uh, her perspective might be as, as a female junior leader in the army, her perspective broader, you know, in society as, as, to, as to where we are and if that still has a value. That's a great observation. Uh, no, no, I, 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 I'm kind of getting onto your thinking now. I think that's an awesome one. Yeah, is that actually something from the past from an, an, an extremely um, kind of masculine work environment, which obviously traditionally the military has been, of which amongst that, what could be called, let's for want of a better word, an alpha male sort of environment. Yeah, the, the people who lead and, dr- and drive forward effort are those people who are, aggressive really is, is kind of how we're, how we're terming that and actually is that redundant you know in the in a more equal working society in which we work today um that some of those traits would actually be quite harmful yeah, to I mean, an organization and you know you know we are absolutely living through this period of change in the army at the moment and you know embracing all you know the right values that are reflective of society because you know for one i personally believe that the army is a reflection of society however Clearly, there's also this balancing act between, uh, you know, keeping up with society, but also maintaining that underlying purpose of us being a war fighting machine. The, the fact of the matter is, if you're not competitive, you don't want to win when it comes yeah, to war yeah, fighting. It's a fascinating one. You know, second place doesn't look very pretty. And, um, and we've already talked about you know, these 10 principles have been formed or were led to, you know, have been formed from, from history, from thousands of years of history. Um, and perhaps it's too much for us as a society to argue that no, 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 uh, that history is 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 now redundant um, because thousands of years is a, is a long time. I think that's a really interesting topic for a, a future future um, discussion. But we, with our, with our last kind of um, fifteen minutes or so, we're going to go on to the final topic, which we're going to talk about. So we've looked at the lessons learned from history, which a lot of it does look into psychology. Again, we've looked at the focus on making it about the psychological aspect as the t- two principal methods of how the army has success or aims to have success in warfare. And the final one is something called mission command, which I think is how we kind of organize ourselves um, uh, and how we deal with um, leadership, command, control, arguably. So the army, I'll, I'll give a li- really quick brief intro for um, our military colleagues who are probably quite fam- familiar with um, this term, but for our civilian listeners, um, or our non-military listeners, Mission command is essentially an idea that rather than having a tr- more traditional sort of dictatorial approach to giving direction to people where big senior leader says, we are doing that, it gets passed down to the lowest common denominator 
and they do exactly what have they been asked to to to, to the letter. So mission command is, is is taking a different approach. They're saying that senior leader still gives their direction, but they give it in something known as an intent. An intent is fundamentally um, an end state. So you're saying saying to someone where you want them to get to, but you're not telling them how they achieve that. And by not telling them how they achieve that, you're essentially opening up them into the the understanding space. So you're bringing more brains to the party because there's more people involved. Um, you're bringing a, a more you're championing a more nuanced approach. You're saying that essentially people closer to the problem, i.e., lower down the hierarchy who are dealing with those problems directly, probably have a more nuanced understanding of the problem because they, they can see it directly in front of them. Um, and you're also getting some buy-in from them as well. You, you, you're including them, you're, you're valuing them, and you're valuing their understanding. And the viewpoint is that this is this is a great technique and, and in the, the complexity that is, in this sense, the, the battlefield, um, having that more nuanced approach, having more brains as, as part of it um, allows you to, to think faster and, and, and think well, as we were saying there, with more offensive action, with more, with perhaps more, more aggression. So that's um, mission command. I don't know. I mean, you know, to what extent it this, that kind of uh, way of thinking has percolated um, the civilian industry, or perhaps whether the civilian industries had this way before we did. I don't know whether you've got any thoughts, um, Charlie, whether you, whether you've observed it anywhere. I think fundamentally, mission command comes down to trust. And so it depends really within your organization. If you have that capacity to trust your, uh, your juniors, those, those, you know, within your team to achieve that aim, yeah. as you, as you mentioned, that you laid out, um, you know, uh, that's sort of the same, the art of management is, is the ability to delegate, you know, and you can only do that if you have the, the confidence in those individuals mm. that you're delegating to delegate to the point of discomfort, delegate yeah. some more, one of our, characters you've mentioned before old field marshal montgomery big fan of delegation he was yeah absolutely um do i think i mean for example let me take the example of um my my fiance who currently works as a she's a product manager for a data and tech company and she has a team that um you know she is getting to know she has helped to form that team of it's only uh, six to eight people who, who who work uh, with her for her and you know she's confided to me that actually sometimes she does struggle to delegate uh, to the point of discomfort mm. uh, and in part that's her own character in the sense that she's a, a bit more controlling and and that's because she knows the sort of standards she wants to to achieve um, but equally you know there comes a point where you just have to have to let go have to just you know trust that you've you've developed them enough that they they have the the, the knowledge and skills to, to achieve that particular task. Yeah, uh, delegating is such a fascinating one because as you said there, a really good point about you know your fiancé there. Um, sometimes on certain tasks, you know what the required standard is and perhaps your team isn't able to do that and you're the only person who can do it. So it's not always a catch-all that you, you, you can solve everything with delegation. And sometimes there's often, um, especially if you're working with slightly more inexperienced um, subordinates, team members, that you, if you're going to be willing to delegate, you're going to have to accept maybe a slightly less slick product, with the brief, with the understanding that the the collective benefit of of delegating that task off and empowering those people, we hear the term empowerment a lot, but is better than you yourself delivering this absolute 100% solution. Um, that there's a, there's a long term benefit for that, and I think I think it gives you more capacity, it gives you 
better engagement of the, of those individuals. Um, but you're right, it's, it's a balance. Sometimes there's times when you need that 100% solution and perhaps um, that's not the sort of time to, de- to delegate. Yeah, we've talked about that before, haven't we? That uh, choice between pursuing the 100% solution and, and being a sort of uh, a slave to that or accepting the sort of 80% solution in order to, you know, p- progress forwards and, 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 you know, move on to the next task. Do you have any thoughts, Charlie, on um, guilt around delegation? This is something I definitely felt as a young leader when I when I when I first came in. Uh, the thought of delegating things made me feel a little bit anxious because I sort of thought I must lead by example. I must lead by being the hardest worker, um, and that's oh, it's the wrong thing to do to give other people work. Yeah, um, really interesting. Um, firstly, because we're in a more technical side of the army, it means that. You know, some of the combat engineering, uh, you know, I personally am not an SME, a sort of expert in the same way that my corporals are. And so when it comes to a combat engineering task, actually, I'm quite comfortable delegating because, mm. quite frankly, I'm, I'm, I have discomfort at the thought of me having to do it myself. So, you know, therefore, by delegating to my corporals, I know that's the right thing to do. They expect it. They know um, that you know, I'm giving them a realistic task and a realistic time frame, and they have the, the 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 workforce to achieve that. So, from that technical perspective, I didn't find it discomforting. I know exactly what you mean. You know, when it comes to let's say the more management side of things, the more um, personnel focused workload, and sharing that with your your senior uh, non commissioned officer, your sergeant or staff sergeant, with whom you are a team. Um, and yet we as the officers still have that slight um, hierarchy of responsibility. Delegating sideways, if you like, is is much more challenging. Yeah, delegating to peers. Um, yeah, that's a really tough one. Yeah, um, and, and I think you've probably seen that as well. Because obviously yourself, you're a slightly more senior officer and therefore you've had to delegate to other more junior officers who are both peer and also a part mm. of your team. Yeah, yeah. Um, so finding that balance is, is challenging. And what I'd say in terms of the army is we're good at saying it how it is, mm. not taking anything personally, you know, having a very task-orientated approach, not getting too emotional. Yeah, yeah. I personally believe that in the civilian world, there is more emotion attached to everything and you have to tread a bit more carefully around your colleagues so as not to offend yeah and there's that bit of also how do you yeah you're delegating tasks how do you prevent perhaps that perception from maybe the bitter individual who thinks oh he's he or she's giving me their workload you know and that that's that's not mine to do and i think there's a there's a tacit understanding with effective delegation that it's not just i'm giving you my tasks i'm giving you my task some of my tasks to free me up to be able to do things that I'm either more qualified to do or more in a it's it, it's more in a position to do so to it's just think strategically or to take on other tasks. So I don't think it's like, you know, it's it would be very wrong to think delegation is I give my jobs off and then just sit with my feet up and observe it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean in theory, if you think about a planning cycle, you know, you've given that bit of direction for that particular task, you're already thinking about the next task yeah, and yeah. planning that one. You know, we have this expression in the army is that two thirds, one third in a sense that if you're given, for example, three hours to achieve a task, you will only take the first hour in order to translate that instruction, that delegation to mm. your to your team, and then they've got the two hours to achieve that. And they, they could break that even more, and they could break that down to 40-minute segments. Is that right? The math's right there, 40 yeah. minutes, 40 minutes. I'll go with it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's great. Right, yeah. Uh, so they have then 40 minutes, that two hours, which leaves the 
80 minutes, 120, mm. I am right. Yeah, they leave the uh, 180 yeah. minutes for, for their team. And so you can see how that two-thirds, one-thirds, you know, going back to the principles, timely decision-making. Mm. So long as you respect a sort of time frame that is realistic and achievable, then I think that's a fair way of delegating, which I think is crucial. Yeah, no, it's a really good point there, isn't it? Um, and it's certainly a tool that we, uh, although we all know, it's so easy to to slip out of out of using that. Um, a, a final point I, I kind of want to say on delegation, and it's because it's a bit of a pet, uh, not a pet peeve, I'd say, a pet passion. Let's call it of mine, is how do we articulate our intent? I've written an article on it in the past. Um, I, I do think it's something that we we sometimes get a bit wrong and perhaps overcomplicate. Um, I think if that community, if you're not communicating, as we called it, the aim in the principles of war. Um, on a level that your people can psychologically understand and plays into their psychological um, um, sort of uh, uh, yeah passions and things like that, um, you're really missing a point. And I think sometimes people's people leaders might have in their head the perfect vision of where they want to go, but they don't communicate it to their team effectively. Um, and they certainly they either they'll go one of two ways. They either communicate it perhaps too sort of flippantly and don't get the the real detail of of, of what's required and the, and, the, and the key aspects that make something profound um or they more often give way too much detail and they tell you absolutely everything you must do and absolutely and it's and, it, and it's too much and you just can't remember it and ultimately if you can't remember it you're never you know it's not going to have much long, longevity to it so i think crafting a really well um articulate but simply worded um intent is vital to achieving that yeah i mean taking one of george orwell's rules for the english language you know never use a long word but the shorter words can be used instead uh you know nice simple rule yeah. for having a clear intent and, it, and it ultimately it provide you know if we a criticism you could say of this mission command thing is you've got all these people doing different things you've got all this independent action bouncing around the stratosphere um so what is the glue that kind of brings it together and i think it is that intent statement um is the glue so getting that right is is important um we're probably going to bring it to an end there um uh, as i say quite a a long long week at work this week so um we'll have a slightly shorter episode this this um tonight um but i've really enjoyed it i think some really interesting topics god we could we could have talked about these for hours and i think it just pins back into that point of um yeah, the army has studied these things for hundreds, if not thousands of years um, and has some really interesting reflections on the, the human side to how we do these. And so perhaps there are some lessons you could take away. And it's not just about guns, tanks and bombs. Um, it's also about, um, uh, you, you know, psychology and the human side to it and, and messaging. Um, so this has been the fifth episode of Setting the World Street. God, I can't believe it. I think we're... Um, on 200 and uh, 220 downloads so far so we're quite a new podcast at the moment so i would say to our listeners if you had in- enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed delivering it please give us a give us a like and more importantly give us a share and um, with friends family would really like to grow our listenership um next target has got to be a th- i think a thousand downloads if we, if we can hit that'd be awesome and Fantastic we'll- target we got a unity of effort there that's, yeah there uh, we go we, we, we've established our uh, we, um our, our aim we've just got to maintain it now um so yeah um if it please if you've enjoyed the podcast give it a share and we really enjoy doing it we want to keep on doing it um um our next episode if, if we can get a thousand downloads for our next episode we've got a really interesting one and we look at the topic of mavericks 
hmm, not just the guy in Top Gun. And we're going to say, are they the lifeblood of an organization or are they a liability? Fascinating topic. I love me a good maverick. You can guess which side I'm going to come down on. But um, I really look forward to it. Um, so thanks for tuning in for Setting the World Straight and, and catch in with us next week um, for hopefully a really interesting episode.